We'd like to open Scripture this morning. The first passage I would like to read with you is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's an interesting passage in which the Apostle Paul talks about his relationship with the Thessalonians, with his people. And it's a striking thing that if you read it carefully, you will discover areas where Paul compares himself as the apostle to his people, as a missionary to his church. He compares himself to a father. He speaks about himself as a, in a fatherly manner. But he also compares himself to a mother. He speaks in a motherly way to this congregation. These are good roles for pastors and teachers for the flock. 2 Thessalonians 1, the verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of God. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you, as who, among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll read a part of chapter 3 in our, uh, we'll read up to 4 verse 5. And our text for this morning is from 2 Timothy 4, the verses 1 and 2 and 5. 2 Timothy 3 verse 10. <coughs> Paul is writing about Timothy, the word of the Lord. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So our text is, let me read that again, verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of God. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God's name with the words of hymn 81, stanzas 1 through 7. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Alistair Begg was meeting one day with a number of pastors, and he quoted verse 5 of our text for this morning. As it reads in the NIV, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. He said to the others, he said, I increasingly find that verse to be the anchor point for all my days. I wake up on a Monday and I say, well, what will I do today? And I say, well, I think I'll try to keep my head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of my ministry. And thereafter, he said, and when the waves beat on me and I feel like running away to the hills somewhere, what should I do? Well, Alistair, just keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Verse 5 seems to me to be an appropriate text when you're installing a brother like Steve Vandervelde. You may know I was his, one of his professors for some years. Our lives, as we uh, spoke about it yesterday together, have intersected many times over the past years. But I think this morning of one particular situation where life was not going so well for our brother. And what did he do? It was a critical moment in his life. It wasn't good. What did he do? He grabbed his canoe, took along his wife and his newborn baby, and they went on a canoe trip out where there was no real canoe paths. And he got lost. 
And then his problems didn't seem to be so big anymore because he had bigger problems. But he survived, obviously. So it's a good text. Just keep your head, endure hardship, and do your work. And I suspect most pastors can relate to that. There are days and weeks when things seem to be coming at you from all sides, and you have two choices, either go under or allow what really matters to rise to the top. And our text speaks about exactly what matters. Every preacher can find his mandate in verses 1 and 2. And the four staccato commands of verse 5 seem to bang it all home. And so in this service in which we want to dedicate our brother to his task among you all, it's good to pause before these words and hear God's word under this theme. The dying apostle charges young Timothy to preach the word. No, I don't have three points. I often taught my students, I don't care if you have one point, two points, three points, as long as your sermon is not pointless. Well, this sermon shouldn't be pointless. This is the point. The dying apostle charges young Timothy to preach the word. Brothers and sisters, you've got to see that there's a real urgency about these words of Paul that we have before us this morning, an urgency on many fronts. Think of Paul's situation. We said it, he's dying. He writes about it in verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. It won't be long now, says Paul. And not only is he old and dying, Timothy's a young man. He's timid. He's got a big task in front of him. It's quite a moving moment. It seems from the book of Acts that Timothy was converted through Paul's words, probably on his first missionary journey already. And ever since his second missionary journey, Timothy was always at Paul's side. You often find Timothy's name alongside of Paul's in his letters. Difficult tasks Paul assigns to Timothy. Even when Paul goes to prison, Timothy is close by. He calls him, my beloved child, my true child in the faith. This is Paul, his converts, the people who are converted. They're going to become his children. Paul saw him as a dear son. In fact, Paul once wrote to the Philippians in 2 verse 20, I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in, my, in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, <coughs> he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So these really are the words of a dying man to his dear son. And what do you say to your dear sons when you're dying? Only things that matter. And so this is Paul. Timothy, this matters. This first. This above all. Preach the word. And in keeping with that urgency of that moment, what does Paul do? He actually places Timothy under oath. Nothing less than that. An oath. Lord's Day 37, we rarely use it. An oath. But this is what Paul does. The verb that Paul uses, I charge you, I give you this charge, is a verb that has legal connotations and can mean to testify under oath in a court of law. It's used to swear in a witness. Look, all the elements of a lawful oath are present here. An oath is sworn, first of all, in the presence of someone, namely in the presence of God. <coughs> Our catechism says a lawful oath is a calling upon God as the only searcher of hearts to bear witness to the truth. 
Well, here Paul calls upon God and Jesus Christ as witness and as judge. Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give you this charge. And also when you swear an oath, you swear by means of something. We swear, if necessary, by the name of God. You can do that. So to hear again, the sense seems to be that Timothy is to swear by the appearing and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So do you see what's happening here? Paul takes Timothy, as it were, by the hand. He brings him into the intimate presence of God, the Father, and of Jesus Christ. And he says, Timothy, you and I, we are going to stand before the Lord God of heaven and earth and before his only Son, the Son who has loved us so. And there you got to promise me something. No, more than that, you got to promise God something. Namely, that you will be steadfast in preaching the Word. Here we are at the very heart of ministry, the very nature of all ordination vows. <coughs> Here we learn ministry is not just a career, it's not a business, it's a charge and a promise in the presence of the Almighty God to do what God wants us to do, to say what God wants us to say. And surely it's no small comfort that we do this in the presence of the, of the Christ who will come to judge the living and the dead. Ultimately, it is the very one, He is the very one whom we preach, who will judge our preaching. Mars Day 19 takes rich comfort in the fact that on Judgment Day, we will recognize the judge as the very person who died on the cross for us. We have a friend on the bench, it says. Well, so too here. Promise in the presence of Christ to preach Christ. Preach all your life long in this way about Him. And in the end, you'll recognize Him by your own preaching. It makes me, of course, think of the, the chapter I preached on on the day I was ordained about 44 years ago. 1 Corinthians 4, there Paul says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. It is the Lord who judges me. This is the sense here. Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, we have one boss. We have one judge. It's not the man or the woman in the pew. Every pastor does well to listen to his counsel but ultimately, it's not the elders and deacons even. It's Jesus. It's not those who seek to be overbearing and throw their weight around either in the church in one of many ways, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is our one single boss. A young preacher once complained to Charles Spurgeon that he didn't have a very big church. Spurgeon asked him, how many people do you preach to? He said, oh, about a hundred. Solemnly, Spurgeon said, that will be enough to give account for on the day of judgment. The truth is, Timothy, Steve, me, preachers among us, we have to preach in such a way that we can say at the end of our ministries, as certainly as Paul says in verse 8, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, 
will award to me on that day. And the urgency of all of this is especially so because all those other pressures that Paul talks about in these chapters, if you read through the pastoral epistles, <coughs> he often speaks about those who, who get into stupid controversies about genealogies and myths and whatnot else. In chapter 3, verse 7, he talks about times when people will be lovers of themselves, disobedient and unforgiving and slanderous. And, and you've got to catch this one in 3, verse 7 always learning but never able to dis acknowledge the truth. Or chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he talks about those who have itchy ear disease. They just want to hear what they want to hear and have little regard for the truth of the Word of God and the majesty of it. It's a simple transition from itchy ear disease to turning one's ears away from the Word of God altogether. No wonder then that Paul says to Timothy, keep your head in all situations. Be watchful in all things. Pastors, especially in our day, can have so many pressures on them, can have so many, <coughs> can be assaulted on so many sides that it becomes difficult to focus. There are not only ideas that conflict with the truth, there are ethical issues that arise, there are those who are ill and need the comfort of the Word of God, there are those whose marriages and families are in trouble and they need direction. It was a prophetic word to all pastors, keep your head in all situations. And surely this too is an aspect of what Paul has in mind. How does one manage to keep one's head? It's also a manner of continuing to preach the Word. There's the focus. It's the focus for all of us as the people of God. Some of us as retired ministers, we, we keep preaching. Why? Because it helps us to keep focus and pay attention to the Word of God. The truth is I, I never hear the Word of God better than when I preach it myself. How can I escape it? It keeps us focused. Helps me to keep my head there's the focus. Paul reaches back into Timothy's childhood and how he learned the Old Testament Scriptures from Lois, his grandmother, and Eunice, his mother, and says, don't underestimate the power of that word useful to teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. This is how the man of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work and manages to keep his own life. Keep your head. Keep it by staying in tune with the Word of God. Preaching could also be called heralding. In the days of the Apostle Paul, the herald was a messenger who, who vested with public authority, conveyed the official message of kings and magistrates and princes or military commanders. You couldn't check your news on the iPad or the iPhone or the newspaper. You had to listen for the herald to come by and tell us what was new in the, in the country or in the city. The word preached called to mind the royal herald who went as spokesman for, for, for the king from town to town, proclaiming not his own message, but an authoritative message from the king, announcing the things the king wanted announced. He speaks with dignity, with sincerity, with authority. This is the pattern for every preacher throughout the ages, God's herald under divine authority to proclaim God's message. When the herald proclaims his message, the voice of the king is heard. Like the king's herald, God's herald does not dare. 
to withhold, nor revise, nor delay, nor neglect the message of the Master. And that message of the herald is not a formal and theoretical discourse which only a few can understand. Rather, it's addressed to all the citizens of the kingdom. Neither is it a message solely about events long past and no longer applicable. Rather, the herald brings the latest news about events within and outside the kingdom, news that is relevant to the times in which he lives. So a preacher must obviously understand not only the Word of God, but he must understand the culture in which he lives, the culture in which his people lives, in order that he might apply the Word of God in a manner that pleases the king. So Paul tells Timothy to do, herald the word, the word about Jesus Christ. And notice what this herald proclaims, only the word. There are some things, says Paul again and again in these chapters, that preachers should stay away from. Chapter 2, verse 23, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid controversies because you know they produce quarrels. It's a word for our day. There will be those who want to drag you into arguments and senseless debates that go nowhere. But the Lord's servant who is wise will know what is minor and what is major, what the Word of God speaks about and what it does not speak about. The task of the minister of the Word is not to settle every controversy with his opinion, but it is to minister with the Word. What the Word of God insists on, we must insist on. Where the Word of God leaves people free, we must leave people free. It's a reminder that we need. How often are men not inclined to climb the pulpits with their own ideas, the latest philosophies, fanciful stories, and wonderful dreams, while Paul says a herald of God, the king, is going to come only with the word of his king. Preaching exists not for the propagating of the preferred views, opinions, and ideals of the preacher or of his audience, but the proclamation of the mighty acts of God. And be aware, it is then that the preaching of the Word has power, and only then. Opinions are a dime a dozen, but the Word of God is a power unto salvation. We are reminded of the words of God spoken through the prophet Isaiah, Reverend Vandervelde will pay attention to them this afternoon about the rain and the snow that don't return empty. So is my word that, doesn't, that goes from my mouth. One can think of the words of God through Jeremiah. Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Or how more recently we think of how Martin Luther responded when appearing before the Diet of Worms, he had to explain how the Reformation spread throughout all of Germany. Luther said, I didn't do it. The Word of God did it all. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy preached that powerful word, that word alone. Be ready, he says, in season and out of season. It's actually a bit of a debated text. Of course, our, our visitors will, will know what it means, in season, out of season. July and August, that's in season. The rest of the year, that's sort of out of season. Well, not really. It's not really what it means. It, doesn't, it, it, it means that we should always be ready to speak God's Word in every situation. 
doesn't mean we have the right to be rude. John Stott says we have no liberty <coughs> to barge unceremoniously into other people's privacy or to tread clumsily on their corns. Instead, the verb has the sense of urgency. Press at home on all occasions, convenient or inconvenient. Be persistent in season or out of season. The Christian herald knows he's handling matters of life and death. He's announcing the sinner's plight under the judgment of God, the saving action of God through the death and resurrection of Christ, and the summons to repent and believe. Convince, rebuke, exhort, says the New King James. The NIV says, correct, rebuke, and courage. Sometimes there will be a need for a word which corrects and convinces people of sin and the power and the truth of the gospel. Sometimes a word of rebuke will be in order, causing a person to feel guilty and even foolish, and then showing them the way to the tree of the cross. At other times, a word of encouragement and exhortation will be needed and a message of hope. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Elsewhere in these letters, we get the idea that Timothy, by nature, is a pretty timid fellow. Paul also considers him to be a young man. But these kind of factors may not get in the way. Timothy is not to rely on personal likes or dislikes or inclinations or preferences precisely because the Spirit of God is not a spirit of timidity, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Therefore, the people of God, the men of God, should be likewise. Moreover, Paul says, Timothy, do all of this with all long-suffering and teaching, with great patience and careful instruction. Patience and instruction these are to be, you could say, two of the chief characteristics of the successful servant of God, patience and teaching. Take away patience, be an impatient preacher, a pastor and teacher who always wants results immediately, and you will become a fanatic, your tone will be harsh, and your approach will be legalistic. But on the other hand, if you take instruction, teaching away, you will become powerless and ineffective, having nothing to say and no message to bring. But be unfailing in these two characteristics of patience and teaching, and the Lord God will greatly bless all the work done in His name. When you read these exhortations, then correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instructions. Isn't this exactly what Paul's talking about in 2 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians 2? He's talking about the role of a pastor and teacher is like the role of a father and a, and a mother. The role of a father is there's times that it's time to rebuke and there's time to teach and there's a time to encourage. It's what fathers do, don't they? Don't we do that? And, and mothers, well, well, the point is we, we do all of this with love. If you read Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2, you see Paul is just overflowing with affection and love for his people. They do all kinds of things, 
and, 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 and Paul just loves them. And that, too, is to be characteristic of every pastor, every congregation. The preacher has to, has to love his people, and hopefully the people will love their preacher. I've almost finished reading the uh, book about the ministry of Timothy Keller, who recently passed on to be the Lord, with the Lord. At one point, Timothy Keller served a small congregation in his early years, and as they reflected on that later on, they said, Timothy Keller could say anything he wanted to his congregation. Why? Because they knew that he loved them. Got to show as we preach that we love the people of God, and you can say what you want to say. There's a saying about that. They don't care how much you know as long as they know how much you care. It goes hand in hand. Speak the truth in love, says Paul to the Ephesians, always in and out of love. Keep your head in all situations, to come back at that for a minute. It has to do with a sense of vision, direction, purpose. If the pastor doesn't know where he's going, how will the sheep? When everything else threatens to close in, you just keep going. Perhaps it also means this, take care of yourself. Just keep your head. It's often said that a, a pastor has to be sure to take care of his marriage and his family. Paul said that, 1 Timothy 3. He must manage his own family well. And that's so true. No one is expected to sacrifice their family on the altar of ministry. Nobody's ever asked to do that. But not only must a pastor keep his family well, he must manage himself well. Ministry can be a lonely business in which you find yourself assaulted from every side. There can even be times in which because of all the kinds of factors around about you that you actually feel far from God and you feel like you're a robot who has to bring in message after message after message. Precisely then, preachers need to beware and be on guard for one's own head and one's own soul. Apply the Word of God again and again, first of all, to yourself. Our service of the King will suffer if our families fall apart, but our service of the King will also suffer if we fall apart. Read through the pastorals. So often Paul is saying, Timothy, train yourself. Devote yourself. Don't let anyone look down on you. Manage your own family. Effective ministry always begins with the one who's doing the ministering. Endure afflictions, he says. Hardship. It's a fact, and Paul prepares Timothy for that as well. Bold and effective ministry will result in opposition because that's the nature of the Word. Hebrews 4, it divides. Effective ministry will result in opposition, sometimes even animosity. Ministry can be a lonely business, therefore. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, our Lord Jesus said. Being determined to serve Christ above all else sometimes means others are quite disappointed with us when they perceive the will of God differently. And then it's difficult to, be, to soldier on for the Lord, but be not surprised 
Paul faced so much of this. Our Lord Jesus, how much of this did he not face? His fiercest opposition came from within the church. It was, after all, the church that put him on the cross. Do the work of an evangelist. What does Paul mean? I read an interesting article on mission in the pastoral epistles which pointed out that even though much of the pastorals is talking about a settled church situation, we should not be mistaken. It still has a very missional emphasis and a very missional goal, so to hear. We're probably not supposed to think that Paul is saying to Timothy that alongside of being a minister, he also has sort of a part-time job as an evangelist. Instead, I believe he's saying, even when, Timothy, you are involved in preaching, teaching, instructing, correcting, even when you are busy keeping your head in all situations and learning to endure hardship, you must not forget to do the work of an evangelist. (coughs) If the word of a preacher makes us think of a herald, because that's what the word means, the word for evangelist makes us think of the evangel, which is the gospel well, we got to preach the gospel to ourselves, first of all. Remember what the gospel was for Paul? It's the glorious but insulting message that Christ died for us, that we are beset by sin. It took nothing less than this. In the words of Keller, since I talked about him a little bit, he says, this is the gospel. You are more sinful Point number one, you are more sinful than you ever dared to imagine. Point number two, you are more loved by God than you ever dared to imagine. This message has to be brought again and again in the church and outside the church to believers and to unbelievers. In so many conversations, the catechism class, pastoral work, it must again and again come down to this. Do you believe the gospel? Do you acknowledge the king? Because this is the underlying basis of all our conversations. The man on the street thinks he's more righteous than he is, but so does the person in the pew. That's the default delusion we're all afflicted with. But the gospel says, even if you could obey God for a thousand years, you are no more accepted than when you first believed. My wife and I read it once in our family devotions. Paul Tripp said, If you give yourself to an unbroken, moment-by-moment life of ministry, you could never minister enough to achieve God's favor. Grace is never, ever earned, even by preachers. It's all Christ. That's the gospel for the pastor, for the parishioner, for the member, for the non-member, No, it doesn't have to be the topic of every conversation, but it has to be the underlying foundation of all conversations, the basic premise. You can't make people believe, but you can preach the gospel. And all preaching has to be gospel-focused, reminding each and every one it's about our inability and the great obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul never tires of saying, Let no one boast except in Jesus Christ and His power. Brother, 
there really is no other way to fulfill your ministry. It's a big challenge that we lay on you today. You have to be aware of that, and, and this congregation has to be aware of that as well. There will be times when he wants to just head for the hills. I know it. He loves the hills. And we want to head for the hills because there's a refuge there. But when the going gets rough, maybe instead, just say, I think I'll try to keep my head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of my ministry. Amen.